All right, our Old Testament lesson this morning is from 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22. Um, we already talked about one of the times this morning when David was on the run after becoming king. This is actually a time that he's on the run from somebody else before he becomes king. Um, so we, we see that a lot from David. And uh, this is when Saul, who is the king, is coming after David because he thinks that David is trying to make himself king, which he's not. And, um, and so is falsely accusing David and trying to kill him. And we get to see here at least some of how David responds to that. This is on page 455 in your pew Bibles. Again, it's 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. God, we pray that you would help us um, not only to read it, but to hear it, to hear it for real, to think through the implications of what it is that you are saying to us, how it is that you are revealing yourself, how it is that you reveal who we are deep down, how it is that you reveal um, your purposes for the whole world, how you reveal your purposes for us in your word. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, we pray that you would give us minds to understand, that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your word and to live uh, with you in all things. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. First Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the Lord's an- he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers, or from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, 
Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Turning then to our New Testament, our gospel lesson, uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. This is the passage I was alluding to in the children's sermon of a Gentile who recognizes the authority of Jesus. Luke 7, 1 through 10, which can be found on page 1604 in your pew Bibles. Because when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't know if you are aware of this or were before just now when we read this, that there were times when Jesus was amazed. There are actually two times mentioned in Scripture of Jesus being amazed, and they are both related. We just read of one of them. So usually in the, in the Bible, we find other people being amazed at Jesus, right? And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that people were amazed at his teaching because he taught us one who had authority. Hmm, interesting. A lot of times people are being amazed at Jesus, and yet twice we see Jesus being amazed. This was one of them. And this is where we see Jesus being amazed that a Gentile recognizes the authority of Jesus. And the other time is related, and that's when uh, people who are Jewish, who are Israelites, don't have faith. He's amazed at their lack of faith. And so, in other words, we've got uh, the people who should get it aren't getting it. And that is just amazing. You know, here they have their whole Bible, their whole Old Testament that's pointing to Jesus, and then he shows up, and instead of being excited, they miss it. They don't believe. As uh, John puts it in the opening chapter of his gospel, he came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. That's amazing. That should, that should be amazing to us. It was amazing to Jesus, right? 
And at the same time, then you have this person who is not an Israelite, who has no reason why he ought to be able, why there's no good reason that he would have to understand who Jesus is. From all outward appearances, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Why in the world is this Roman soldier going to be thinking that this Jewish rabbi has anything, any kind of authority in any way? They don't have an awful lot in common. And yet, uh, that's exactly what happens as he says, you know, I think you do have authority. And just like I have authority over my soldiers, I think you have authority in spiritual ways where what you say goes. And this amazes Jesus. Um, this kind of opposite of what you expect, you make it far enough in the Bible, you start expecting that. That the opposite of what is to be expected is what tends to happen. And we're going to see the same kind of thing where we are in Acts this morning. We're in Acts chapter 22. And uh, to bring us up to speed again on uh, where we are, Paul is in Jerusalem and he's in some trouble. And what has happened is he came to Jerusalem to bring gifts to the uh, church in Jerusalem from all these other churches around. And when he gets there, he knows before he ever gets there that when he gets there, there are going to be people, people there who have it out for him. He knows that. He goes anyway. And then he gets there, and sure enough, people start spreading false rumors about him and uh, making false accusations that he actually brought a Gentile into the temple. And so now they want to kill him. This, of course, stirs up whole problem right there uh, at the temple as people start trying to beat him and kill him right there. And so the uh, Roman soldier who's in charge of keeping the peace in the area rushes out, sees what's going on, doesn't know what's going on, um, but this shouldn't be happening. And so he stops it and takes uh, Paul away to try to figure out what's going on. And Paul says, let me talk to the people. He says, okay, maybe this will help. So Paul goes out and tells his story. Tells his story about, uh, about who he is and who he used to be. And he starts with who he used to be as the point of connection he has with the people who are trying to kill him. And he's like, I was there. I know what you're going through. You're doing what you're doing because you see things exactly how I used to see them. So I get it. And so he says, I was a Pharisee. I was Jewish. I was a Pharisee. And I was the one who was going after people who were Christians and wanting to kill them. I get it. But what happened to me is I met Jesus. I met the risen, the resurrected Lord Jesus, who is the Messiah. And what's fascinating in this whole part of his explanation to them is they're still listening. Usually, Usually, this is the point where people stop listening. So when Peter is preaching um, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, he gets to that point, and that's kind of where people are cut to the heart. Like, that's where it's, it's over at that point. At this point, not even. At this point, they're still listening to what it is he's saying until he gets to the very last line. We'll cover that in just a second. But one of the other things he talks about is what happens to him when he meets Jesus. And do you remember physically what happens to him? He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his eyes quit working. He can't see anything for three days, not able to see anything. 
And then he goes to Ananias, who prays, and he's able to see again. And this is a physical sign of what had been uh, his whole life story. That spiritually, Paul had been blind his whole life. He had not seen what it was that God was up to. He had not understood who Jesus was. And so even though he had been reading his Old Testament, even though he'd been trying to put into practice all the laws, even though he knew what it was to hold everybody accountable to following those laws, he had missed what it was all about and what it was all pointing to. So he had been blind. His whole life, spiritually, until he meets Jesus. And now suddenly he can see for the first time. And so this physical uh, act was a sign of what was going on with him spiritually. And this is his story, and this is what he shares with these people. And what he's sharing with the people, he's not sharing this with them um, in order to get himself out of trouble. He's sharing this with these people because he's been there. And he wants good for them. He wants their eyes to be open. He wants them to be able to see what he can now see. Anybody ever seen those um, magic eye posters or books? Anybody seen those? You know what I'm talking about at all? I will describe them for you, which will be even worse than looking at one. It is those, uh, those pictures that are, it looks like a lot of colorful static. And then if you adjust your eyes just right, things kind of converge, and then you can see a 3D picture. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Anybody ever not been able to see one of those? You looked at it and couldn't see it ever? Yeah, pretty frustrating, right? Even more frustrating is the people who are right there trying to help you see it and telling you all the different things to try, and you still just you can't see it. And I think that is, uh, <laughs> oh, man, that is a frustrating thing to, position to be in when you can see it clearly, and it's amazing, and you're sitting there with somebody else, and you want them to be able to see it too, and so you're saying these things like, well, just unfocus your eyes or just kind of half-close them or maybe move it a little farther away or maybe if you have it at this distance and then kind of move it slowly, you know. And they're doing all the things you're telling them to do, and they're like, I don't see it. <laughs> and it's frustrating because you can't make them see it. And that's where Paul is. All he can do is share his story. He can't make them see it. And so he's sharing his story and who Jesus is and what he's done in his own life and um, how he is this Messiah that God has been promising from the very beginning. And, um, and that having died, he's been raised to life again. This is, this is amazing stuff. The question is, are they going to be able to see it? And at this point in the story, it seems like maybe they will. Maybe they will see it. And that they too will have a similar experience to what Paul had. Their lives will also be changed. But It's not the way it works. Verse 21 is where we left off last week. And that is um, the line where they stop listening. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then verse, verse 22, The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Okay, pause right there. So what's going on is he has shared his whole story, and they're, they're fine with all of it. 
willing to tolerate it anyway until he says that the Lord has sent him to the Gentiles. They're not okay with that. They're not okay with that because they are blind to what God has been doing. From the very beginning of the Jewish people, do you remember who was the, the first person of, that all the Jewish people traced their ancestry to? Do you remember? There's one guy's name. You remember it? Abraham, right? It goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's where we get the 12 tribes. But it goes all the way back to Abraham. And from God originally calling Abraham, were the Gentiles in view then? Or was it just going to be about the Jewish people? Oh, from day one. From day one, the Jewish people <laughs> were in focus, but only as a way to then bless the whole world, which was also to be in focus. And so uh, if you look, this is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is uh, God calling to Abram from the very beginning. He says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to land. I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Abram's like, Yes. And I will bless you. Yes. I will make your name great. Yes. And you will be a blessing. Yes. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Yes. And all people, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What? <laughs> and so they have this sort of selective hearing where they heard all the parts they wanted to hear, and they kind of, leave off the rest. Not that we ever do that. But as you go through the Old Testament, the Gentiles were always in view, that God was always doing things through Israel for the good of the whole world, that he was revealing himself most clearly to the people of Israel, but for the whole world. And yet, even though this is what God has been doing from the beginning, even of the Jewish people, when Paul mentions this to them and says that, hey, God has a plan for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And so he sent me there to tell them this good news. They said, no. They were blind. They were blind to what God had been all about from the very beginning. They had been reading this in their Bibles and still could not see it. And so at this point, they think, if you are going to go to the Gentiles, if you're going to go to people who are not uh, Israel, and you're going to tell them that they can get to God without becoming Jewish, then you are leading people away from the way of God because they missed it. And so they decided he needed to die, and not, you know, after a fair trial or anything. Just right now will do. And so they start, you know, kicking up dust and um, shouting, throwing off their cloaks, let's, let's go, let's go right now, let's do this. And so the commander, of course, takes Paul away again. Okay, we're not going to let him get killed like this. And so they take him away and decide, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Let's just torture him until he tells us what's going on. Great. So as he goes away from the crowd, you think maybe things are going to get better, but then, yeah, let's, let's flog him first. But as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman centurion who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. 
and those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So what do we have here? We have another case of mistaken identity where this guy had originally thought that Paul was some Egyptian who had started a revolt, and no, that's not who it is. All right, well, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. We'll have you flogged, and we'll figure this out. Well, no, you can't do that either. I'm actually a Roman citizen. And he's alarmed that he was about to do something (laughs) that would have gotten him in some serious trouble. It was not okay to flog a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had certain rights that nobody else had under uh, the authority of Rome. And so uh, when he finds this out, naturally, he's alarmed. Um, So from the side of the crowd, they were blind to what was going on, the message of Jesus, for who Paul is uh, and who he's about as he's telling people about Jesus, of what God is doing in the lives of the Gentiles. And then at the same time, we have this uh, man who was blind to who Paul was, (laughs) as a Roman, and at the end of this, he at least sees something about Paul, that he is a Roman citizen and is to be treated with a different level of respect than he had previously thought. So we're going to talk about both of those. Um, where did I put that? There it is. Ah. I just looked at the clock. We're going to have to talk about this quickly. Okay. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about do not judge or you too will be judged. The measure you use will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. <laughs> you remember this? So uh, Dallas Willard has an explanation of this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, where he talks about what Jesus is talking about in that passage in a way that I think is very helpful for us in understanding this passage of what's going on, why, um, why, what is wrong with the crowd, why they can't see who Paul is, and why they are wanting to condemn him for what he's doing are really, really linked in a much closer way than we generally realize. Um, well, then we'll see that for ourselves as well. Okay, so here's how he talks about it. He uses his own translation uh, from the Greek, which I think is helpful in understanding this from a little different perspective. And so he says, um, Jesus says, Why do you concentrate on the little speck in your brother's eye, but do not take into consideration the board in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get that little speck out of your eye, when you're standing there with a board covering your own eye? And then he says, How, we might ask, does Jesus know that there's a board in your eye? That you have a serious character problem that needs to be removed. In the next verse, he even goes on to say, You hypocrite, first take the board from over your eye, and then you will have clear vision to extract the little speck from your brother's eye. So again, he asks, How does he know that those who judge, in the sense of condemning others, are hypocrites? Is it merely, and this is what we tend to think, is it merely that there must be something wrong with us because there's something wrong with everyone, and that we should not condemn others until we are perfect? Is it just the let him who is without sin cast the first stone routine? No, that's not it. Rather, it is because he understands what condemnation is and involves. And he says, condemnation is the board in our eye. 
Jesus knows that the mere fact that we are condemning someone shows our heart does not have the kingdom rightness he's been talking about. Condemnation, especially with its usual accompaniments of anger and contempt and self-righteousness, blinds us to the reality of the other person. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother because we cannot see our brother. And we will never know how to truly help him until we have grown into the kind of person who does not condemn. Period. That's a hard word. This is a very different way than the way of the world. But this is the very thing that we are likely blind to, although it's been on every page of our Bibles. When Jesus talks about <laughs> love each other, love each other, love each other, and we say, okay, but first I'll, des- I'll decide what it means to love, and second, I'll decide what each other means. But he actually gets to define what love is, and he also gets to define who each other is, and he continually expands that where he says, you know, love each other, sure. Then he also says, love your neighbor. And, of course, somebody gets up and says, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> and so he continues, and he love your enemy. So whatever category somebody might fall in, there's no getting around the command to love them and to love them in the way that Jesus defined where it says, as I have loved you. As he lays down his life for us. As he desires our good to the point of even sacrificing personally for us. Just love people like that. Wow. Meanwhile, as though that's been on every page of our Bibles, we tend to be blind to it, and we tend to be blind to our neighbors because we don't see them as people. We see their behavior, or we see their political beliefs, or we see uh, the things that they are doing that just irritate us, or the things that they are doing that are out to get us. And whatever it is, we see them as opponents maybe, but we don't see them as people. We don't see them as neighbors. We don't see them as people that we are called to love and to sacrifice for their good. And so we are as blind as, um, as this crowd. And we find ourselves maybe not verbalizing this, but in our hearts we find ourselves responding to the actions and words of others with this rid the earth of them. They're not fit to live. This heart of condemnation towards the very people that we are called to love. I mentioned the, the Roman commander who was alarmed when he realized he was about to treat Paul in a way that was not allowed. And he had just about made a really huge mistake. He actually had made the mistake. It's only the centurion that stopped short. But he was about to make this huge mistake by having Paul treated (laughs) worse than he was supposed to be because of who he was. I'll read you another passage from a different book. This is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. And in talking about um, our relationships with other people, he says, uh, there are no ordinary people. You may have heard this before. 
It says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, very latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. In other words, the reason that this commander was about to treat Paul like he wasn't a citizen is because he didn't know that he was a citizen. And once he realized Paul's status as a Roman citizen, that changed how he treated him. I think the reason that we tend to treat people the way we treat them is because we don't understand who they are as people who have been created in God's image and who have sinned as we have, as we have sinned. Maybe not in the same ways, but come on, for the same reasons. And that the people that we don't like and the people that we don't agree with and the people that we don't think are fit to live are still people who are loved by God, and who we are called to love as well. Did you know that in the Bible that Jesus never tells us how to defeat our opponents? He doesn't. Because he has a different perspective, and he understands what Paul later tells us in in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, people, the reason we're able to love our enemies is because people aren't our enemies. People... We can love, regardless. But there is something different at work. There's spiritual forces at work, and that's where we have to do battle, not with the people, but with these forces. And of course, in Ephesians 6, he tells us what kind of armor we use to do that kind of battle, and it's not the armor that we're used to. Anyway, the crowd didn't see Paul for who he was. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. The commander didn't see Paul for who he was either. And Paul wasn't able to make the crowd see it. I can't make you see it. But I can share the word with you. And I can pray that God will open your eyes as well. And if you already do see it, I hope that you will continue to share this with those who don't. And that you will pray that God will open their eyes as well that people would understand how much God loves them. That he would love them so much that he would send his son who would give up his life for them. That he did this for you, for me, and for the world. 
we would understand this as good news and share it as such. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.